Southern blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. It's that time of the month. Hi, everyone. It's Melanie Vare, your loyal servant, producer, host, garage band editor. The live show is on hiatus for the next two months, so this month's episode features the best of Patsy. Patsy Hatfield Lawson is a nationally recognized storyteller who's been featured on NPR. She's a descendant of two feuding families, the Green-Jones feud and the Hatfield-McCoy feud. She grew up listening to her mama telling stories on their front porch in Tennessee. She went on to get her master's degree in psychology and became an award-winning college professor. She's presented to everyone from nurses groups to senior centers to engineering conferences to our That Time of the Month audience on numerous occasions. Patsy combines a unique sense of warmth and humor in all of her stories, and audiences lose themselves in images of rural life during the 1950s to 70s. Her first two stories feature her relationship with her mama, and her second two stories feature her relationship with her husband and fellow storyteller, Herman Lawson. And he also may be a blood relative, but that's another story which we'll hear in a little bit. Let's check out Patsy's first story dealing with her mother, and it's titled No Questions Many. Yeah, is this good? As far as I'm concerned, all of our family drama occurred in silence because its focus was on what was never spoken at our house. That topic was sex. I inherited old parents. Daddy was 50, Mama was 40 when I was born. So by the time I reached puberty, a word neither of my parents had ever heard, Daddy was 62 and Mama was 52. They were East Tennessee mountain people, both with eighth grade educations. Mama looked and acted more like a man. She chewed tobacco, never wore a bra for any occasion, milk cows, birth calves, killed hogs, chickens, and mostly ran the farm because Daddy wasn't around much during the daytime. He hauled freight from Knoxville to other Upper East Tennessee towns daily. Mama was good with any farm emergency, but she was a total failure with sexuality and all related matters. Her attitude was clearly communicated. I ain't answering no sex questions. Around the age of 11 or 12, I, like all my girlfriends, wanted to find answers to our sexual questions. Putting together what my friends said about their own breast buds, their mother's advice, and the Sears and Roebuck catalog, I decided that if I ever got breast buds, I wanted a training bra. Using my cooking knowledge at the time, I guess my new breasts were about two tablespoons full, (laughs) which would equal a triple A size. 
I also had difficulty figuring out how they would train my breasts. <laughs> but believe firmly that all breast buds needed to be trained in some way. One day I was summons, I summoned up the courage and told Mama I needed a training bra from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. She looked shocked and said, What's that and what's it used for? I gave her the information from the catalog and said, And she said, You don't need one of them things. They'll choke you. <laughs> I asked how a training bra could do that, and she said, them things cut my breath off when I wear them. Besides, you ain't got nothing to put in one of them anyway. Then she walked off, leaving me standing there in shock. My friends said their mothers had gotten them a bra. Guess that wouldn't be the case with me. I never had another discussion with Mama about bras. I ordered my first bra from Sears and Roebuck catalog myself. The order form asked for size, but I didn't know what 32 inches, 34 inches, 36 inches meant, nor did I know what the cup size A, B, C, or D was, so I guessed. <laughs> My first bra was a size 34C for a girl who I now know wore a size 32A. I reasoned I was leaving room for growth. Right after I had figured out the bra question, I was hit with another crisis with another sexual matter, menstruation. My primary method was to ask all the girls who had younger mothers because they appeared willing to talk about sex. If Mama could not talk about breasts, I already knew that she wouldn't be useless when it came to this topic. Some of those early bloomers already had their periods. I got lucky one day while looking through a magazine and found a Kimberly Clark advertisement for a booklet titled, What Every Girl Needs to Know About Becoming a Woman. <laughs> for me, this was that discovering gold. I ran home, read the ad fully, copied the address carefully on an envelope, and sent it off along with my dime, which was to cover postage and handling. The ad promised to send the booklet in a plain brown wrapper. <laughs> My next big problem to solve was how to retrieve the plain brown wrapper from the mailbox without Mama knowing I had sent for it. I dedicated myself to being the person who got the mail every day until that brown envelope arrived. <laughs> it seemed like a month before it arrived. But on the day it arrived, I hid it and myself in my room until I could read and understand it. It was amazing with diagrams and pictures and answers for the first time. I could understand. 
I must have read it six times that day. In the front of the booklet, there was an explanation of why girls have their period and how to know when to expect your period. There was information about how to manage cramps. Toward the back of the book was gold, too. A list, of, a, a list and pictures of Kotex products to be used during that time of the month. There were sanitary belts, a variety of sanitary napkins, tampons, pictures exploring where tampons were to be placed, and answers to questions such as, can a tampon become lost in your body? <laughs> Here were all the answers I wish my mama would give me. After I read the booklet several times, I shared it with all my friends at schools. I now think this was my first step toward my career as a teacher. <laughs> a year after the booklet arrived, I had my first period. It was there one morning when I awakened. As excited I, as I was, I had, to, I had finally arrived at womanhood. I still had to tell Mama about it. Oh, God. How could I tell her that it had occurred when we had never discussed the process? What words would I use? Mustering up the courage, all the courage I could find that morning, I walked into the kitchen where Mama was scrambling eggs at the time. I walked into the kitchen, and I simply said, I started my period. She looked stopped. She looked shocked, stopped working with the eggs, which then burned, and she walked away saying, I'll take care of it. <laughs> she walked into her bedroom. I stood by the stove with the burned eggs. About ten minutes later, she came back with a pair of my panties, to which a thick layer of clean cloths had been pinned into the crotch. <laughs> handed them to me and said, here, put these on. <laughs> By the way, you'll need to change the rags daily. <laughs> that was it. I was horrified. What was this? I had imagined a sanitary belt and a Kotex pad, <laughs> just like the ones in the booklet. I imagined something modern. Or at least something that looked medical. <laughs> Several days later, after I had recovered a bit from the shock and had time to think, it finally occurred to me that she had given me the same solution she had used herself to manage her own periods. While family drama often focuses on fights, resentments, harsh words, physical and psychological abuse, my family drama was more about problems that were unspoken, never addressed, not understood, which frequently placed me in conflict and indecision. Sometime before Mama died, I finally found the courage to ask the question I had always wanted to ask. Why were you never willing to talk to me about sex? Her answer was simple. I knew you would eventually find out anyway. Here's a postscript. By 1970, 
As I had finally figured out my true breast size and was getting comfortable with menstruation, the women's movement arrived, and I joined the protest in full swing. Yes, I threw my bra away in support of the cause. Guess Mama was right after all. I didn't need one. And now to get an even better sense of Patsy's mama, take a listen to her next story titled Hatfield Family Weddings. I think it's my height. This one is called Hatfield Family Weddings. It was Christmas 1959 when my youngest brother made the announcement we had all come to expect. He and Judy would be married in June of 1960. This would be our first family wedding. We were also told that this was to be a fancy affair. While the marriage was not a problem for our family, the fancy part was a major source of worry. You see, being an isolated East Tennessee farm family, we always worried that we didn't fit in with the rest of the world because we didn't know proper etiquette and having to dress in clothes we didn't usually wear was a major stressor. The thought of being with city folks always produced anxiety. The wedding announcement thrust Mama, Daddy, and me into our own set of worries for the next six months. Daddy was proud of the announcement and excited that the torch of marriage would finally be passed on to a son. Daddy had been diagnosed with angina pectoris, a heart condition that produced arm and chest pain whenever he got upset or worried. He had already given up farming in order to prevent further heart attacks. His health at the time was a major concern for the whole family. Mama and Daddy would not be allowed to chew their tobacco or dip their snuff all day. (laughs) And they would arrive back home after dark, which violated their East Tennessee rule of always get home before dark. (laughs) I was 12 at the time, hitting puberty, and excited beyond description about the wedding. I was asked to be in the wedding, up front with the bridesmaids, and would be wearing a long dress like those worn by the bridesmaids. It was the prettiest dress I had ever seen. Turquoise, scalloped hem, scooped out neck with a small collar, white pearl necklace, shoes, and a headband dyed to match the dress. This was my Cinderella moment for sure. A week before the planned wedding, the middle brother called home to say that he and his new bride would arrive a few days before the wedding and would drive us to the event. What? New bride? When? How? We knew there was a special friend, but wife? It was too much for us to absorb. It seemed that they had discussed a fancy wedding But as it got closer, they impulsively went to the Justice of the Peace a week ago and were married with only the necessary witnesses. Things changed quickly when this story was revealed. Mama was losing two sons. Daddy was celebrating two marriages at once. And I was dealing with being cheated out of a future wedding. (laughs) To me, these weddings were my chance to see a bigger world. 
I was feeling totally robbed of another big celebration. What if my last brother chose to elope too? I'd be down to only one fancy wedding. Friday, the day before the wedding, my brother and the new wife arrived. The excitement was building. Mama's clothes, the dreaded bra and hose, which she never wore, <laughs> the beige lace dress, hat, shoes, and gloves were laid out on the bed ready. But there was anxiety all over her face. The conversation was awkward and strange as we all tried to adjust to each other, all hoping to be seen as something we weren't. This was the biggest thing that had ever happened in my whole life. The wedding was in Maribel, Tennessee, on the campus of Maribel College, in a small chapel that looked like a palace to me. All the groomsmen, my brothers, and even Daddy wore tuxedos. This changed my daddy. For the first time in my life, I saw how handsome he was. In my eyes, this wedding was magic. Pure, simple magic. The ceremony began. Mama and Daddy were ushered into the left front pew. Mama looked strange indeed. She walked in like a floor lamp with a new shade on her head. <laughs> She was not smiling, and I could read terror in her body. Daddy appeared okay. The bride's parents came in with an air of confidence and smiles across their faces. They knew the ropes here because this was their hometown and their third and last daughter. They smiled, nodded to friends and acquaintances as they came down the aisle. We looked exactly like what we were, dressed up hillbillies out of our comfort zone. <laughs> the ceremony began, and somewhere about ten minutes into the word part, I thought I heard a sniffle. I listened carefully. It was indeed a sniffle. And I think how special that someone is honoring our family wedding with tears. Women always cry at weddings. The sniffles continued and became louder. As I tried to figure out where they were coming from, suddenly there was a loud wail, a sob, and a low moan. The preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. Who is this sobbing fool? I can't see the audience. But as the preacher told everyone to greet the new Mr. and Mrs. Hatfield, I turned around to see Daddy sobbing into his handkerchiefs, slinging snot and tears everywhere. It was Daddy. Mama was as white as a sheet and wanted to run, I could tell. I stand there in utter horror as the wedding party proceeds out with the bride's parents. Daddy is still sobbing and wailing. Mama now looks like a block of granite and looks faint. Outside the chapel, family members try to console Daddy. Mama is totally silent. <laughs> Following the reception, we traveled home with Daddy apologizing profusely and Mama saying she should have stayed home in the first place. <laughs> Two years passed and the last brother announced his upcoming wedding. It would be another fancy affair in another city. I'm chosen to keep the bride's book. 
Daddy and Mama announced they're not attending. By this time, Daddy has been prescribed tranquilizers to keep his emotions in check so that he won't have angina attacks. Finally, Daddy consents to attend the wedding knowing that he can rely on his tranquilizers. Mama is the last to consent. The big question in everyone's mind is whether Daddy can make it through this wedding without sobbing and wailing. On the day of the wedding, Daddy's in good spirits and appeared to be doing well. But as we get closer to the time of the wedding, Daddy begins to look a bit odd. His eyes are glazed over. He has a huge smile across his face, and he speaks in a slurred tone. Mama's in the same clothes she wore in the previous wedding and more robotic and paralyzed than ever. I'm keeping the bride's book in the back and planning to run if Daddy sobs and wails through this wedding. During the wedding, I can see Mama gently pull Daddy to the right to keep him from falling out of the pew and pushing him to the left to keep him from falling on her. But he's not crying. The wedding ends with no sobs and wails. As Daddy walks down the aisle, he has a giddy smile and waves to everybody on both sides of the aisle. At the reception, he's the life of the party. We all congratulate him on his success. And as we drive home, Daddy confesses that instead of taking one tranquilizer, he took three just to make sure he did not cry. <laughs> Until I was 40, I could not tell this story because it was too painful. Now it's my favorite daddy story because I understand how very sensitive my father was and how despite his attempts to remain unaffected by his feelings, he could not hide them. I now think this was one of his best traits. And now moving in a different direction, we're going to get some insight into Patsy's marriage. This story features her husband, Herman Lawson. It's titled Dragnet Lexus. My mental health issues often arrive unexpectedly. It was a hot September evening, and Herman and I were on our way to aerobics at the church in the 97 Lexus. We were running late, so Herman drove, and I left my purse and keys behind. Without giving thought to the heat, I had brought magazines to read in the car while I skipped the first part of aerobics, the jumpy part, because I had a fractured foot. I planned to participate in the yoga and stretching part in the last 30 minutes of class. 6.05 p.m. Arrived late at church. Herman grabs his water, his car keys, and hurriedly exits the car. I see him turn and lock the car with the remote. I begin to read my magazines and soon realize how hot I've become in the car. I press the button to open the car window. Nothing happens. I try again. Same result. Apparently, I need car keys to open the window. 
I then reach up and manually unlock the car. 6.06 p.m. Immediately, the car goes into alarm mode. Horn blows, headlights flash, the car vibrates, and then it begins to speak, saying, Please move away from the car. <laughs> the car continually repeats, Back off! And then I see the car lock back all by itself. What? It won't let me unlock the car from inside? 6.15 p.m. Now my body is slapped silly with total panic. The temperature suddenly rises to what feels like 120 degrees, and I know I'm trapped in my car. I remember that kids, animals, and adults have died in locked cars. <laughs> A full panic attack is now in progress. I can't think. I'm scared, and I hope no one is seeing this. A full minute passes, and suddenly the talking car stops talking, and I'm still locked in. 6.22 p.m. The panic intensifies, and now I see newspaper headlines. <laughs> Woman suffer suffocates in car in church parking lot. Woman dies in Lexus in church parking lot while husband does aerobics. <laughs> A fluent wannabe woman suffocates while the church watches. <laughs> 6.23 p.m., I tell myself, I have to get out of this car, and I start to manually unlock the car again. But I hear a loud voice in my head that says, Don't do that, just in time to prevent the alarm from going off a second time. 6.25 p.m., finally my psychology and therapy background kick in, and I try to remember all the steps to control panic attacks. Step number one, recognize that you're panicked. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Step number two, stop the thoughts that are causing you to panic. All right. Step number three, breathe deeply. <sighs> <sighs> Step number four, after calming down, Try problem solving. I began to calm down and finally get a new idea. Find the car manual in the glove compartment. Search the index for locked in car. <laughs> I find seat belts, service agreement, seating, but not how to disengage a security system. Security system, that's it. There it is. Page 43. I quickly go to page 43, and it says, quote, Never lock the car with someone in it. <laughs> I read it again. Never lock the car with someone in it. 6.30 p.m. Got it. Now I know who's to blame. Herman. <laughs> Somehow women always feel better if you've got somebody to blame. I can see him now on the back row of aerobics, the only male, doing his steps and enjoying the scenery while I'm suffocating in the car in the church parking lot. Now I'm mad and getting madder by the second. You know, the mind makes some strange connections under stress. 
I think of my marriage vows and that part about till death do us part. I think Herman's time has come. <laughs> I read on. It tells me two ways to get out of a locked car. Number one, put the key in the ignition and start the car. Shit, I don't even have my keys. My brain flashes to Herman inside, back row, moving happily to the Dixie Chicks, and I think of their song, Earl. <laughs> Step number two, unlock the car from the outside. Great. I begin to plan to get someone's attention to tell them to go get Herman from class to come and get me out. 6.40 p.m. Not one person walks by. Not one person drives by. Not one. I'm now drenched in sweat, still panicked. Then I finally see two women several feet away talking, probably in a good gossip session. <laughs> I bang on the windows. I try to honk the horn. It doesn't work either. I wave in the sh and shout to no avail. Honestly, I could see that they were so involved in their conversation that if a bomb dropped five feet away, it would not have gotten their attention. Then I began to think about the story they would tell tomorrow about Herman locking Patsy in the car, and I think that suffocation might not be too bad after all. <laughs> 6.45. Finally decide I have 15 minutes before class is over and that I won't die in 15 minutes. I try to settle myself down. 7 o'clock p.m. Class is over, and one or two girls come out of the church. For some reason, I'm suddenly struck with embarrassment, and I duck down so they won't see me and ask why I missed class. 7.05, the teacher appears and gets in her car. I'm still ducked down. She drives off. 7.10 p.m. Mr. Dixie Chick finally appears with a sweaty smile on his face. I watch as he scans the parking lot, looking for the car, and I see him approaching. Through the closed window of the car, he says, why didn't you come to aerobics? <laughs> Breathing fire, I said, I couldn't because you locked me in the car and I couldn't get out. He said, I did not. <laughs> I said, yes, you did. He said, how could I have done that? I could see that this was going to take a demonstration not an explanation. <laughs> I said, unlock this, unlock this car and get me out of here. 7.15 p.m. Herman unlocks the door. I get out and breathe deeply and say, Give me the key and get in. <laughs> He's confused, so I have to repeat the command. <laughs> Seeing my anger, he finally obeys. <laughs> then I slam the door, remotely lock it, and say, Get out! <laughs> I watch him go through all the steps I used to try to free myself with the same results I had. 
While Herman tried to free himself, I stand and watch from the outside. <laughs> then a friend drove up, got out of her car, and said, Hey, Patsy, what you doing? With vindictiveness written all over my body, I replied, I have Herman locked in the car. <laughs> and before I could say, say more, she says, I'll see you, and was gone. I guess she knew this was one of them domestic situations. <laughs> After ten more minutes, I let Herman out of the car, and we drove home in silence. Hang on. gentlemen, the story you have heard is true. No names have been changed to protect anyone. <laughs> State of Tennessee, County of Sumner, while no charges were ever filed in this case, I will tell you it was a very quiet night at the Lawson household. <laughs> Patsy Lawson, give a big round of applause. She's so brilliant. And there's Herman right here, the friend. <laughs> how did you how do you feel about this? I did it. You did it. I just love that they're at aerobics together. Is that the cutest thing ever? Oh my gosh. Russell, do you want to go to aerobics with us? Yes. He'd actually be good. He's a good dancer. I'd be terrible. Uh, oh, that is a classic story. That would be scary here, actually, in Nashville. Um, what time of year was it? Did you say? September. September. Whoa. Yeah. You guys are lucky she's still with us. <laughs> oh, but yeah, that would probably be me, actually. I'd probably lock you in the car. Or, or myself. One time I picked someone up at the airport and I was excited to see them and I was just like, I got out of the car and I was like, hi! And they are like, uh, you're, I forgot to put the car in like park. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going down the airport. I'm pretty quick though, I caught it. Um, so, yeah. And now for Patsy's final story. <laughs> we get a look at a different side of her marriage with Herman which also links up with her family. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Let's listen now. I'm thankful for all the uh, Explore Story members here tonight. <laughs> Let me get up here where I see it. I slammed into puberty at age 12. By the time I had reached 14, I was interested in anything that wore pants and had a fly in the front. This interest overwhelmed my mountain-raised mother, who thought that sex and males were only to be tolerated at best. In no way was she prepared for my interest in boys, let alone what to do about it. As I remember, she and I were in constant, unfriendly competition to see who could outwit the other on the topic of boy interest. Me trying to attract as many boys as possible, she trying to run them off any way possible. Being a child of East Tennessee mountains, 
comes with certain liabilities. One of those is called inbreeding. <laughs> which was just another topic Mama chose not to deal with until a third cousin of mine showed up at my house the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. It was obvious to me that he had romantic interest in mine. He and I shared the same last name, Hatfield, and descended from the Hatfield-McCoy feud. We enjoyed many of the same activities. We were both going to college. Typically, he showed up on weekends, and within a month, Mama had figured out his romantic interest also. This forced her to have a talk with me about dating your kin, folks. <laughs> the conversation began with, Don't you know you can't date and marry your cousins? My response was, yeah, I know, but Jim's not a close relative like brothers and sisters or even first cousins. She said, there's reasons you don't date your relatives. While I had heard this statement many times from lots of mountain folks, no one had ever bothered to give me the reasons for not dating your relatives. It was stated simply, as a rule, you must obey. And at this particular moment, Mama stated it as a rule also. Mama's next comment was, You have to tell Jim he can't come to see you no more. I was angry and confused. I argued with her for weeks until it became clear that she was not bending. Eventually, I ended the visits. I took college general biology uh, excuse me, it, I, it took college general biology for me to finally understand the genetic issues that are associated with marrying your relatives. In this basic course, I learned that marrying your uh, relatives can result in a bad mix of genetic material which could lead to strange abnormalities. My professor used the example of King James from England. You know, the one that got the Bible translated into English, and he was also the founder of the game of golf. Anyway, my professor said that King James was born with a major genetically caused defect as his tongue permanently extended outside his mouth. <laughs> he said royalty usually married from within their own family tree. Now... The idea of not marrying your relatives made sense to me. During my senior year of high school, I started dating Herman, a hometown boy. We dated through college during the sophomore and junior years. He proposed on a movie date night near Christmas our junior year. The following spring, my genealogical fo focus cousin came for a visit and was told of our engagement. His response was, well, you guys are related. What? <laughs> this was news to me. He explained it to me, but I wasn't listening and gave the typical disinterested, disinterested response of, of finding genealogy to be confusing because there were too many lines everywhere and confusing words. We were married a week after college graduation. Shortly before the wedding, 
this same genealogical focus cousin gave us copies of the Green-Jones family feud history and said that both Herman and me were descendants of that feud. He said, he said that sometime we would want to read it. We put it away with other keepsakes, keepsakes, keepsake stuff without reading or talking about it. Really, we weren't interested in geology at the time. We were more focused on the sex that marriage would finally bring. <laughs> this, this year, after nearly 45 years of marriage and lots of sex, we began to put together our family memoirs by going through all the stuff that had been given to us by our families. We ran across the genealogy stuff that my cousin had given us. We began to read and study, putting pieces together. It was all there in black and white. We are distant cousins from three family lines, both direct descendants of the Green family and the Green-Jones feud. We also learned that a common practice during the 17th and 18th centuries among our English Green relatives was the practice of marrying relatives as a way to hold uh, and keep power and wealth. By marrying relatives, you could acquire more property and wealth with less risk of losing it to those outside the family. This new information was astonishing to both of us. Several days after learning about our connection, I began to finally understand my mother's behavior and to raise additional questions. Why was Mama so concerned about me not marrying, not marrying Jim, a Hatfield relative from the Hatfield-McCoy feud? And why was she not concerned at all with me marrying a Green relative from the Green-Jones feud? Did that mean she thought it was okay to marry another Green, but it was not okay to marry a Hatfield relative? Did she think there was less chance of genetic abnormalities from greens than Hatfields? I will never know the answer to these questions. I suppose there are three conclusions to this story. Number one, I finally won the struggle with Mama over dating and marrying relatives. I finally learned and understood the answers to why you don't date relatives. Number three, I probably should tell you that our two sons were born with all of their parts where they're supposed to be. <laughs> well, mostly, one son did have a mysterious tooth in the top of his mouth. To this, Mama would have said, I told you so. Patsy Lawson, let her hear it. Now you heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every 